This episode of Let's Think On It comes from an excerpt from O Brother Radio with Will Lockamy, Reed Lockamy, and Dr. Mark Westfall. Time to welcome to the show Dr. Mark Westfall. We do this once a month, and you can find all of these conversations wherever you find podcasts under the name Let's Think On It. And people do that. Uh, we have at this point covered so many things. We've got a few things on there. Over the years. Yeah. yeah. I almost I hate that we didn't start podcasting this back in the beginning, but yeah, yeah. it's okay. Well, yeah, yeah, we missed a few, but there's a lot of stuff covered. No doubt. It's uh, fun. I'm still enjoying it. And I think I found a topic we haven't touched base on. Well, let's let's hear it. What you got? Well, so it kind of serendipitously. Serendipitously. There you go. That's not an easy word. No, huh? it's not. No. But it was you trying it, not me. On air. <laughs> um so I got an email. Do you know guys know about um, uh, Science Cafe through the McWayne? Yeah, we've actually had McWayne on before to discuss uh, their Science Cafe. So, really cool thing. Yeah, it is cool. I get, I get an email from them. And so apparently they're starting something new. And I'm going to have the guests tell you more about that here in a minute. But um, And it's uh, Science on Screen. They're going to show a movie mm-hmm. and then bring like a expert in to come in and talk about the science that's on the movie. Cool. Yeah. So... Um, the first topic uh, was about um, a person named Henrietta Lacks, and we'll get all into that in a minute. It's called The Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks. Which is a really good title once we get into this story. That's a, that's a really fitting a title. great title. No. I cannot and, wait to talk about this, by the way, because everyone in the room knows all about it except me. Good. No. And just from the small details that you gave me yesterday and that Reed told me a little bit, I, I'm fascinated already. It's a fascinating topic. It really is. And so... When I saw that that was a topic, I did a little reading on it, and then um, I called the, the person who sent the email with McWayne. I said, or I texted him back, and I said, so who's the speaker? And he told me, and I said, well, then I need to get her on the show yeah. to kind of learn about what she's going to talk about and, and learn about this Henrietta Lacks situation. Um, and it got me thinking to do a broader series of things. So this is hopefully the first in a series of talks we're going to have on bioethics which is kind of its own field these days cool like the the ethics of what we do with this biological advancements we're making okay um so a lot of interesting questions when you think about the recent CRISPR news with the chinese scientist who was you know just whipping out genetically modified babies and you know people were in an uproar about that understandably so yeah there are a lot of questions and only going to be more of them coming up well you probably i mean you remember when uh the uh Dolly, the sheep. Oh, sure. Was cloned, yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Was huge. And that's been a few years ago. Uh, mm-hmm. But there's been a lot of stuff since then that's come up and pushed our thoughts on what are we going to do with all this advancement? I and mean, advancement's great, but how do you regulate it and monitor it? So um, I've got some thoughts on who we might have in. So that's that's where we're heading in the long run. Great. Yeah, we've, we've had Dr. Stephen Austad. He's the head of the bio department at UAB. And to talk about a lot of the stuff before, and we should have him back in at some point, because the amount of cloning that is happening and the it, it's it'll blow your mind when you yeah, find out happening. like basically if you are a person that drinks milk for your in your cereal or whatever you at some point have had milk from a cloned cow and you've probably eaten meat from a cloned cow right yeah. which blew my genetically mind. yeah or or really actually it may not be true to say you you had milk or meat from a cloned cow you've had milk or meat from a cloud that's the offspring of a clone cow. Oh, maybe so not. they what they did was they they uh, modified the genes and then produced the animal that had a better production of this and then started um I bet you're right reproducing that. Yeah. that and you're having the the uh 
the offspring, essentially. Yeah. And, it, and according to a headline that my aunt shared recently, I think <laughs> if you've been to the circus in the last year, you've seen a cloned clown. That's my understanding. <laughs> So yeah, we have ants that don't know how to share uh, factual information. Yeah, or how to under, yeah. understand the difference between factual and non-factual. Yeah. Clone clowns. Yeah. All right. Clone clowns. Okay. All right, well, so this uh, topic is about um, Henrietta Lacks, and um, our guest is Shantice Allen. So let's introduce Shantice. Shantice, welcome to the show. Hi, good morning. Thanks good for, afternoon, sorry. Thanks for joining us. <laughs> Thank you for having me. Um, so Shantice, uh, you're the first speaker for this whole McWayne thing. So be- as we get started... Tell us what McWayne's doing. What is the deal with this science screen thing? Yeah, so McWayne Science Center, interestingly enough, is the only science center that has been selected for the 2019 Science on Screen initiative, um, which is amazing. In In the the nation? In the nation. Yeah. How about that? Who did the choosing? Uh, like, who is the company that's putting this on? Um, so it's it's supported by Alfred Sloan Foundation sure. and um, Coolidge Corner Theater. Um, these are, the, I think, the two funders of this. And I'm not sure. I think there was an application process that they went through and they were selected. So it's really exciting that Birmingham's McWayne Science Center is the place. The place. This. And you are the first one. I am. Nice. No yeah. pressure. I know, right? Yeah. <laughs> So this is such a cool idea, though, because people interact with science through popular media and people see films and hopefully read books and things of that nature, but see films certainly and maybe sometimes don't think as deeply about like, oh, what is the scientific thing going on right, there? Mm-hmm. Right, exactly. So I'm um, really exciting that this is, that I get to be the first person to um, participate in this initiative, but also exciting for McWayne <laughs> because we know that they're, they're a place where lots of people come to learn about various science issues, but we oftentimes don't see it as a place where adults right. come to do that. So it's really cool that they're actually putting this together with the immortal life of Henrietta Lacks as the first actual film that they'll be showing right. um, next Thursday, actually, February okay. 28th, 6 o'clock is when it starts. Next Thursday, February 28th, and it's at the, the IMAX Theater Yes, at McWayne. Mm-hmm. Um, who in here, uh, outside of Shanti's, I'm sure, have you guys seen the film? I know you both know all about it. I have, have not. You, okay. have, and yeah, I know this have it was you an HBO it? film, it but I've, I've not seen it either. I have a lot of students who read the book on which the film is based, but I've not seen the film myself. So Yeah, it's a great film. It's, um, I believe, um, own Oprah's um, production company actually has produced this, so she's in it. She's in it, right, yeah. yeah. She's in it, um, and she plays Deborah, who was the daughter of Henrietta Lacks. Um, and just kind of Deborah's story and discovery around this as well with her mother's cells. So it's a really interesting perspective um, on so, this story. So let's set this up for the listeners. What is the, let's talk about the, I guess the, uh, in a nutshell, the story, and then we'll expand. What, what is the story about? Um, so the story is about um, a woman named Henrietta Lacks. And actually her name is not Henrietta Lacks. Her name is Loretta Pleasant. Um, she had a nickname, Henny. And from that came Henrietta, um, and she married a man named David Lax, so Lax is the last name. Um, but she was um, a poor African-American woman born in the 20s and um, was diagnosed with cervical cancer in the early 50s. And those cells were actually, when she went to Johns Hopkins to be treated, she had a biopsy done, mm-hmm. and those cells were taken, and they never died. Um, unfortunately, Ms. Lax did not succumb to her illness, but those cells lived on, which is why they're called immortal. Um, and for a long time, they had been used in a number of different scientific research 
um, opportunities with no one knowing that these cells came from a poor black woman. Um, So that's kind of the gist of the story. And then it goes from there in terms of talking about how those cells have been used over time. And also, I just wanted to mention, Will and I were talking earlier today about this. There's a fantastic episode of Radio Lab um, that also just only about 30 minutes long, and it looks at the story of Henrietta Lacks. And one of the really remarkable things, I just listened to it again this morning to kind of refresh my memory, is that it's my understanding that she also found her own tumor, that she is the one who thought something's not right here and then actually discovered the tumor and upon you know doctors first interacting with her and the tumor immediately it was clear like oh this is something's unusual about this mm-hmm. tumor and sure enough it has been what what a remarkable story yeah. from there yeah. so Shantis, when you say that no one knew that the cells came from a poor black woman like nobody knew some of the scientists yeah, knew some of the scientists knew and but that's where the story gets kind of right. weird that there was maybe a nefarious uh way that they went about this, these studies? Well, um, you know, the, the obviously the folks who took care of her at Johns Hopkins knew that those cells were hers, but um, when they started distributing these, and at one point in time they were just giving them away because they just had such these unique properties in terms of how they were not dying, um, other folks were interested in how do we utilize these cells. So you can you can do a lot of things with HeLa cells. HeLa cells have actually been used at UAB. Um They've but, probably been used at, at any research institution yeah. in the world has probably come in contact with HeLa cells because because of their property of being able to put them on a petri dish and help them grow. And so you can use them in science to study human cells' responses to a number of things. And I'm sure we're going to get into that here in a minute. But yeah, they're, but, they're, a, they're an amazingly invaluable resource for science to study human cells and study um, a lot of different treatments that we're going to, you'd be amazed at what all has been discovered through the use of these, this cell line uh, throughout the years. Turns out I know less about this than I even <laughs> thought. I thought I knew nothing about it. I knew less than nothing. So I have a million questions. Let's take a quick break. Shantisa, let's talk about you and kind of how you fit into this whole thing. Sure. Um, so, Shantice Allen, and uh, thanks for being. Thank you for allowing me to be here. Glad I to have you, yeah. am an assistant professor over at UAB in the School of Public Health, um, in the Department of Environmental Health Sciences. I also direct the community engagement program of our Center for Clinical and Translational Science. So, I've done a lot of work in communities, particularly in, lo- in low resourced and mi- minority communities, around the importance of being informed and influencing research. Um, so this conversation about Henrietta Lacks and how some of that didn't happen um, is really where I'd like to take the discussion on next Thursday night at McWayne. Excellent. Well, yeah. I can't wait to learn so much more about this. So, yeah. So in the case of Henrietta Lacks, so we're in 1951, just to kind of set the stage again for the listeners. And we have a uh, 31-year-old uh, low-income, low-educated. Yes. Um African-American female who goes to Johns Hopkins Correct. to be treated <clears throat> for cervical cancer. Long story short, they didn't know that at the, until she went. And I was reading something, um, a sign of the times at that time was that she couldn't just go to any hospital, could she? Right. No. Johns Hopkins was actually the hospital for individuals to go who didn't have um, access to health care. So they were very much kind of our, the county hospital or, or the place for indigent care. And that's where Miss Lax ended up um, at that time in 1951. We're talking about um, 
um, the Baltimore area where Jim Crow segregation was definitely in place. So she was being seen on public wards or on the public ward, um, or the, actually at that time, the colored ward. Um, um, for the issue that she came in with, which was unfortunately cervical cancer, um, and and was treated, and at the time was actually receiving standard of care. Um, so it wasn't that she wasn't getting what other people would have received, but again, thinking about the context of the time, her being low income, not that well educated, um, more likely people were coming into those spaces with a more progressed disease than than mm-hmm. others. Yeah. Yeah. So. So the uh, OBGYN, I think, was, uh, or at least one of the scientists, George Guy. George Guy. Mm-hmm. So they take samples. Yes. Um, and I think they, from my reading, is they, they took samples from many patients in that time. Yeah. And he was trying to figure out a way to study and treat uh, cancer cells. Uh, and so he took cervical cells, some which had cancer, some didn't, and was trying to get them to grow, essentially, on a plate, and then figure out how to treat them. And he'd done this for many times um, with many people, and usually the cells would divide for a few times, and then they die. And but when you put Henrietta Lacks cells on the petri dish, uh, they kept growing, and kept growing, and kept growing. And I mean, division after division, and they never died. And so, this was the first in history that they had found what's called an immortalized cell line. Now they found others since, has to do with the cancer mutating the genetics of the cell, long story short. Hmm. Um, and, but it was the first of its kind ever, and he started giving it away, as you said, to other labs. Say, hey, I've got this. You go do research on it. You go do research on it. They became ubiquitous across the country and across the world. I mean, these things have been everywhere. Including space. Including space. Right. They helped. And so anyway, so that's kind of the science behind it. So, Henrietta, take it from there. What all... What's the issue with um, from here? Well, the issue was is that um, she didn't know that this was something that had been done. Now, mind you, I mean, doing a biopsy if someone has cervical cancer, that is standard standard procedure to do. Mm-hmm. However, um, as of today, you obviously would give permission for that to happen. And how to help me understand the timeline because they obviously they started studying the cells and realized the potential. How long after that did she die? Do you know what, what the, how quickly after that did she die? It, it was fairly quick. Right. Yeah, she died within, I think, three or four three months, months after yeah. that. Okay. So she didn't know that this, you know, was a potential or possibility. No. And then very importantly, her daughter and her, you know, her family in the years that followed had no idea right. that this was happening. Had yeah, no was, clue. Right. I think it was, what, 25 years? 25 years later when her daughter, Deborah got a phone call from Johns Hopkins and they wanted to do some labs and, and to do some, some testing of the family of, of their fa- of immediate family members of Miss Lacks. Um, and that's when this story started to unroll and unravel that. What do you mean you want to want to do this now? Mind you, Deborah knew Deborah was two when her mother died. Mm. So she didn't have that much relationship with her or didn't remember her. But of course, through family stories um, and just oral history, you know about your mother and you know that she passed of cervical cancer. So for to get a phone call from the exact same hospital where your mother passed to be asked, would you be willing to right. provide your own um, <clears throat> blood cells for in order to be tested that in itself is certainly can evoke lots of fear, lots of questions. 
what is this about, um, why are you asking me this, et cetera. So that's how really this kind of unveiling of what had happened with her mom began. And, you know, it's my understanding. We talked earlier about cloning um, and whatnot, and it is my understanding based on uh, the Radio Lab episode that part of what made this extremely difficult for Deborah was her lack of, you know, sophistication when it came to, uh, you know, medical terminology and all this, and, and, and also just understanding what this meant that her mother's cells were living on somewhere. And I think it's my understanding. She even had some confusion about, does this mean that, that my mother, I might bump into my mother. Yeah. Yeah. So thinking about this from a bioethics perspective, and we start thinking about things such as, um, spiritual beliefs, cultural beliefs, um, and what does this really mean for a cell to be alive? Um, and does that mean that the spirit of this individual is still alive somewhere? Can I touch it? Can I get to it? Um, and those are questions, those are very valid questions that, sure. that anyone could, could ask. Um, if you grew up in a place in a time where that's the thinking or your family's culture is um, that, that, you know, spirits and and the essence of a person lives on. And so if there is a cell line somewhere out there that is still alive, what does that really mean? And if you are giving those cells HIV, does that mean you are giving Giving. my mother HIV? Exactly. Right. So, so yeah, there's a, that's a complicated thing. And even though for me, it might be hard to understand why Deborah would respond that way. Um, you know, I think it's important to understand her perspective given, you know, the time period, her understanding of what all that meant. And once again, you know, all of this could have been avoided if if the family had known about this on the front end and right. been explained. You know, here's yeah. what this is. And, you know, from a scientific standpoint, I mean, this the George guy, he had no clue at the time he took the sample that this was going to turn into this. Sure. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah. it went to such amazing levels. At some point, someone should have said, wow, this is like maybe we should – you know, <laughs> this is it, taking it, off. It, it launched the cell culture industry. I mean, this is a multi-billion dollar industry here that we're talking about. Yeah. Um, and thinking about standardization of how you do cell culturing, HeLa cells allow one, one you to do that. So if you, I get them and you get them and you're in North Carolina or you're in London, we're getting the exact same cell line. So we're able to do our experiments on the exact same yeah. cells. What, what are some of the discoveries that have been, that we've come across using the HeLa cells? Just to give the audience kind of a sense of, uh, what have we done with these things? Oh, how, how real helpful, how helpful are they really? Right. Come on, I mean, Chantix. You name it, um, HeLa cells have been involved, polio vaccine, leukemia treatments, HIV, um, all types of cancer um, um, treatment modalities. I mean, the list just goes on and on in terms of what HeLa cells have been able to help in, in terms of research discovery. And it all started with this case. Yeah. yeah. Henry DeLax. Yeah. Um, it was really the, the, the birth of the boom of discovering a lot of diseases that we didn't understand because now we could study human cells. Mm-hmm. Boy, an interesting one tonight for sure and one that I'm learning a ton about. Which I had no idea. Shantice Allen is here from UAB, and she's hosting Science on Screen coming up next Thursday, February 28th at 6 p.m. at the McGuane Science Center. We'll be showing the film The Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks, and then Shantice will be hosting um, a session after that where you can learn more HeLa cells, something I never had heard, heard of, of. Yeah. until today. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and just this whole story, until you called me, Henrietta Lacks, I was like, I think I know that name, but I don't really know mm-hmm. the 
the story and turns out um, Henrietta was the, even though she didn't know it, the beginning of the cell study movement for the most part. Right. Um, yeah. It's fascinating what we have learned and what uh, she and her cells have done for humanity, really. And I think that brings us back to, so, you know, the, the bioethics of this is, you know, <clears throat> there are companies. Now, I would say George Guy and Johns Hopkins, I mean, if you're just, you know, if you're, if you're wanting to try to kind of grade <laughs> the, uh, the uh, intrusion on someone's rights, um, they, they didn't really directly benefit immediately from this as much. But there have been billions of dollars made by, by pharmaceutical companies, by lots of people. And to reset, I guess, for people that are just now tuning in, um, Henrietta Lacks went to John Hopkins at the age of 31 with cervical cancer. Um, they took cells from her to do some studies. She passed away a few months later. Those cells turned out to be the first immortal cells that had been found, and they've been used since then in all kinds of research all over the world, in space, uh, everywhere, and she had no idea that that was going to happen. No idea. And her family did not know until years and years and years later. 25 years later, right, mm-hmm. and and have never received any compensation. And Now, this has gone to courts for other uh, people, and I'm sure Shantish can talk about this. Um, that's cert- currently kind of the way it goes, the, that, um, that the person who donates their tissues do not receive whatever happens down the line monetarily from that. And that's something probably up for debate or discussion is, you know, how long do you own your cells? Well, and I think an interesting question, and Shanti, I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on this. Some people might say, well, wait a second. What's the harm to Henrietta Lacks or to her family for her cells to have been used this way without her knowledge? What would you, what would you say in response to that? Well, I mean, again, back to context of the time, um, lots of people's cells were being extracted for various reasons, um, for looking at them for pathological reasons, and could be discarded. And you would never know that that had happened. Um, So there was no such thing as thinking about consent at that time. But um, the U.S. Public Health Service study of of syphilis at Tuskegee Mm. and other studies that we know about that have done tremendous harms to individuals really kind of also set off this this conversation around informed consent and ownership um, back to kind of this this ideal of tissue rights and do you really own your own yeah. um, after it has been taken who hey, owns that our dad and, had a hip replacement just like a month or two ago and my immediate question was like what, where's the hip what they do with hip I just thought that was like I don't know. I was just curious yeah, about like, man, that's so crazy. That thing that was in your body your whole entire life. Where is it? And he's like, I don't know. I think they threw it away. Well, like, and maybe, I, was just, I just thought maybe, like, man, they may have taken some slices of it and kept it uh, in storage. In storage. Yeah. Yeah. I just thought it was interesting to think about that part of your yeah. body, something you've had with you forever. is just gone. Well, and yeah. Will and I for years have, uh, you know, kind of been hard on our dad for not being hip. So we wanted yeah. to see evidence <laughs> of mm-hmm. it uh, <laughs> if <laughs> we could. Not hip so at that's all. A, well, but also I, it's my understanding that um, even though this would not have been foreseen in the 1950s, this eventually for the Lax family wound up being a privacy issue because someone mapped the genome and just publicized, like, here's all the information about these people. Yeah, yeah. I I wonder if they weren't called HeLa cells, if they were called cell line 259 or whatever. We'd never know. We would never know. We would not be having this conversation. Yeah. Um, So, you know, anonymity and 
um, privacy is super important in terms of doing research. And at that time, that wasn't what happened with um, Henrietta Sells. So, yeah, I mean. And people are understandably touchy about the whole world knowing like their medical, you know, information. Yeah. 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 Yeah, It's, it's a, you know, it's hard to transport back in time. I mean, we now wouldn't think of doing this without informed consent, but informed consent did not exist. Didn't exist. In 1951. And the whole notion of de-identifying things that d- that just wasn't yeah. the norm right? tracking the genome down i didn't think that yeah. was going to be there possible. was no hipaa at that there time was no, no. HIPAA, no. Right. no. I, I swear i did i just when you guys started this uh last little conversation realized like oh gila got it yeah henrietta yeah we talked about earlier i didn't make the first two letters of the first name first two letters of the last name so so shantice tell us about kind of some of the stuff you're doing now that um may kind of relate to this in any way what's what's the current Henrietta Lacks story that we're going to be talking about in 50 years? (laughs) I think there are a few. Um, One locally here is, again, thinking about ethics and, you know, what's right or wrong in discovery science, um, or even just in doing research and engaging with communities in general. Um, Some things that are happening in North Birmingham, I think, is a a good example of that, of how individuals who are are living in that community being exposed to a number of um, hazardous materials in terms of pollution um, don't really know what all that is um, and how do you begin to inform and also engage that community in that conversation um, in a very respectful way in a meaningful way um, is I, I think is a is a similar mm-hmm. um, lack story Flint Michigan is another with mm-hmm. the, the water crisis there and how lots of decisions were made and nobody knew what right. Especially when there are moneyed interests who are actively trying to keep those communities from being informed about their situation. Yeah, Yeah, it complicates matters grossly. So for listeners who may not know, what what is going on in North Birmingham? Um, So um, in North Birmingham, there are several um, coal-fired coke plants that are there, too, in particular, and um, have been there for a long time. And... and, um, People who have lived in that community have all have constantly complained over a number of years about the smell and just um, the air and, and, you know, soot on their homes, et cetera. And how what is this stuff and what is it doing to us? Um, So there has been some testing of soil that's been done by um, the Environmental Protection Agency in North Birmingham. Um, with results provided back to the community. But if you look at the reports, it's a lot of tables and numbers and words that people may not know what it is. What is benzene? What is arsenic? What does lead really do? Um, and so being able to disseminate or, t- or tell people what these things mean and, and what kind of health effects they would have in a way that they understand is important. Um, but then also actually having conversations with people about what is it that you want to see done? And um, about this, yeah. interest. I mean, very important point you just made, and for about informed consent. If you don't understand what someone's telling you, is that considered informed consent? No, right. Shouldn't be. Yeah. So, no. speaking, getting it to a, a language where people understand what is going on mm-hmm. is informed consent, yes. and that doesn't happen many times. And I see it in medicine all the time too. I all mean, the patients time. nod and sign, and they're getting some procedure and. 
I've talked to many patients in the hospital. I've got a little more time. and I'm kind of building a relationship, and it's clear to me they don't know what's going on. And I'll sit down and kind of put it into just more basic non-sciencey terms. Right. Because I wouldn't have known what was going on either until I went to school to figure out these words. Right. God, I'm that kind of idiot that'll just sign whatever. <laughs> just like, you know, at the bottom of every Apple thing that I've ever purchased. Or oh, yeah, we don't, sure. yeah, we don't know. You've sure. got sales all over the place. Oh, I don't sure. know it, dude. I'm sure. No, but honestly, like, it's, I just am way too trusting in almost everything. And so just like if somebody's like, hey, you're, you got to sign this for I'm like, all right, sure. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I've, it, I've seen consent forms that are 40, 50 pages long, and it's 12 arms of a study. And, you know, you may get this placebo, you may get this drug, you don't know what any of this stuff means, and yeah. sign. Here, yeah. sign. Yep. <laughs> and so from a sociology standpoint, you know, looking at, like, the North Birmingham, I mean, you know, frequently it seems like these types of situations are happening to people who are lower income, less educated. Why? Um, that is a great question. Um, there's actually some folks who are studying that and looking at the siting of hazardous waste sites, um, industrial sites and where they're happening. And over the last 40 years, um, there's actually a, a report called Toxic Waste and, and Wait, Toxic Waste and Race, mm. um, where it identified race as the number one variable for why we see the siting, the actual placement of hazardous um, industrial facilities in communities of color. Well, when people have the means to mount a not-in-my-backyard bi- sort of uh, legal, but people who don't know anything about that process, right. they're not yeah. in a position to do that. They're right. not in a and position to do that, yeah. that. That, as well as the, um, the value of the property, property mm-hmm. values. Mm-hmm. And so if you're going to put some industrial plant, you're looking for cheap land. Right. And if you are low income and uneducated, you're probably un- un- only able to afford cheap land. So you're going to live to cheap next to cheaper land. Right. So there's a number of things to, that we need to do to fix this. Right. Um, but, but ethicists are asking the question, you know, where does, when do you start asking the question about burden on a community because if they're living on if the community is um doesn't have very many amenities if it is um over time you you see this withdrawal of business and then here we are with this heavy industry in place as well all Mm -hmm. of those things compounded is the question of when do you stop doing that in in a particular community and that's what a number of communities are asking, when does this end? Before we <clears throat> wrap up this last segment, I want to make sure, Shanti, thank you so much for joining us. And thank you I for love, having me. I love what you do. Um, and so uh, in, in the break, you shared something with us that you felt you'd be willing to share online, I mean, on air. And you're in a clinical trial yourself at this point. I am. Um, I've been in a clinical trial at UAB for the last year and a half. Um, um, because I have um, stage four breast cancer. It's, it's metastatic breast cancer. I was diagnosed with breast cancer in October of 2012. Um, it was stage one. I had um, a mastectomy with reconstructive surgery and then four months of chemotherapy following that. Went on to live my life. Fast forward to 2015, October again. I don't know why October mm-hmm. is. October. October, yeah. Breast Cancer Awareness Month and mm-hmm. all that. But, um, and, um, and, and, Interestingly enough, when we're, when we're talking about kind of um, 
genetic information, I was just having some regular labs done, and we saw that there was a marker that continuously was ticking up, upward, Um, not shooting up, but just ticking a little bit. It's a tumor marker that's used to look at whether or not there's something wonky possibly going on. Um, Watched that for about 90 90 days, three months, and had a PET scan after that because I was like, all right, what are we going to do besides watch these labs? Let's, Let's see what's going on. Um, and that PET, st- PET scan came back with the cancer had moved from my breast to my liver and lung. Mm. Um, and so from there, it was really about finding um, the right drug combo for me. And, um, and interestingly enough, that was through clinical trials. So I've actually been in three um, wow. since, since 2015. Um, but 2017, the one that I'm in now, it's the one that's been working the longest. So um, understanding one's genetic makeup, which is why I'm so excited that um, Henrietta Lacks has been such a wonderful gift to humanity humanity because we do understand the genome because of her cell cell line. But being able to actually um, develop drugs that are precisionly made, precisely made for my particular type of cancer has been interesting. And I've actually, I've been in on some drugs that were, excuse me, had been in trials where the drug was FDA approved the following year. Mm. So having gotten an opportunity to get to that first um, was important. And so I'm, I'm very grateful for UAB and for, for places like a comprehensive cancer center and where people who are thinking about this all the time. Wow. This is a little bit surprising um, when you said this because you seem to be a very healthy person and uh, had, would have had no idea otherwise. What, where are you now, and what what do you feel like the the future holds? Um, where I am now is stable, <laughs> which is which is great, and hopefully the future holds um, really good drug opportunities for for men and women who are who are battling and living with this disease so that they can stay alive. I mean. Cancer is not the cancer that it was in Henrietta Lacks's day. I mean, there have been so many really good things that have been done in order to address this disease. So um, people are living a very long time with with this. Yes. I'm curious to know. So you are obviously working in the field of bioethics and now you are, you know, and have been for a prolonged time, a patient on the other end. Do you feel good about where the medical field is when we think back to, you know, what happened with Henrietta Lacks, you know, um, half a century ago, are we in a good place now? Is there still needed improvement? What what do you think about that? There's, there's, uh, there's always room for improvement. Um, you know, getting a diverse group of people to be a part of various research studies is important. There's actually an initiative that's going on now called All of Us that is um, looking at um, collecting genetic information from people all over the country. And Alabama is trying to get individuals from all 67 counties to participate in this. But one of the questions and ethics questions is what do you do with that information? If you do a genetic panel on someone's um, on, on, a, on a blood draw from someone and something comes back, how do you actually pr- report that back to that individual? Do they want to know? Right. Um, so those questions are things that are being asked of and really trying to be understood as the All of Us project is ongoing. 
you know, in my philosophy club, uh, we, one of the conversations we have in a, on a regular basis, um, students will bring up, you know, questions about like, would you, would you like to know, you know, when you're going to die or how you're going to die and all these kinds of things. And it's an interesting thing to talk about, but boy, when you start to realize that in many ways we're getting closer and closer to potentially knowing answers to those questions mm-hmm. and it raises, would you want to know that? Right. Or do you want to know that your dad and your dad? Right. Or right. do you, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, or do you, there, there are questions people are asking, but this information go to the police. Um, yeah. What are you really doing with this? So there, there are all kinds of ethical considerations around, around these kinds of things. It's important to do, but it's also important to understand how could this impact a, an individual, their family, right. you know, their loved one, et cetera. You, you are certainly one <clears throat> to talk about this topic, and I look forward to hearing <clears throat> what you have to say at the uh, McWayne Center because uh, your professional world, your personal world, um, you, you're a great first talk uh, speaker for this uh, upcoming project yeah, for them. Looking forward to it, yeah. yeah. To listen to Dr. Mark Westfall live, check out O Brother Radio on Birmingham Mountain Radio. 107.3 FM in Birmingham, 97.5 in Tuscaloosa, at bhammountainradio.com, or on the free BMR app. Join in with your questions and comments on Twitter, at Lockamy Brothers. <laughs>